The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Rivka Slonim will now present her lecture, Exposé, What Your Chabad Shluchim Are Really Thinking. As the Chabad Lubavitch movement continues to grow, as the ranks of the Rebbe's army, the Shluchim and Shluchot, the male and female emissaries continues to swell and becomes more stratified and diversified and specialized. As our areas of foci zoom in and zoom out, as our properties and buildings increase in size, our schools and programs are more heavily populated, our programs become more sophisticated and our PR material more sleek. As Chabad Lubavitch moves from being an eccentric and curious presence to being recognized as the most vibrant and impactful Jewish movement today, it is time, I think, to talk frankly, very honestly, about who Shluchim and Shluchot are. Books have been written about the movement and specifically about what has been dubbed the Rebbe's Army. More books will undoubtedly be written, but none so far have spoken the truth I wish to share with you today. In doing so, I am not presenting. This is not a speech. I am not an orator. This is a fabringen, a gathering of souls, and I am your sister. Perhaps you see me as the other, Perhaps you believe there is an impermeable barrier, a membrane that divides us, but I don't. And so I'm willing to make myself vulnerable to speak this truth from my heart to yours. I confess I am a bit nervous. It is hard to bear your soul, personal and collective. But I have always believed that truth will persevere, and I believe you deserve this truth. Simply put, those who seek to understand the movement called Chabad Lubavitch would do very well to look beyond the brick and mortar infrastructure, the ubiquitous presence on the web, the high profile campaigns, the, sick, the slick brochures and program guides, and the substantial budgets. To understand Chabad, who we are, what we are, and why we are, one must shift focus to the teachings. Before I begin, I have two disclaimers. One, I want to state clearly and squarely own the fact that the Rebbe Shluchim, while they might be ready to leave their families and all of the amenities of observant life and plant themselves and their families in communities, both geographically and sociologically far from home, are still very human. We have our faults, our failings, our foibles, our warts. What I will share with you today is not mutually exclusive from that truth. I also want to state, and perhaps this is obvious, but I want to state that I am not speaking on behalf of Chabad Lubavitch World Headquarters. I am an individual sharing with you. Finally, I have noticed a seismic shift in how people view us, Shluchim. And I believe it's time for people to understand us yet more deeply. 
Let me tell you about Barry. Barry and Lori are twins. I met them in Binghamton 34 years ago. They were attracted to our table in the student union because I had my very cute baby Levy with me. And they did not expect to see a baby on campus, so they came to see the baby. They later said to me they would have never come over to our table. They consider themselves, how shall I put this? In, in Barry's words, reform was way too religious for us. So why would they come over to the Chabad table? But the baby was so cute. We became good friends. We're very much in touch. They love the fact, they loved more than they love today, the fact that they were older than me. They thought that was amazing, that they were older than me, me with my husband, you know, covered in facial hair and a baby in tow, and they were older than me. But the truth was that all the juniors and seniors were older than me in those days, and they were seniors. And uh, one day, Barry came over to my apartment. We lived in a small apartment, and we're talking. And then she says, as sometimes people are wont to do, do you have a bathroom I could use? And I don't know what possessed me, but I looked her in the eye and I said, no, we don't believe in them. <laughs> and... In all fairness, I had spent a few summers in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where I had visited the old Chabad synagogue that was in a neighborhood that was overtaken by a Native American population. And in fact, there were homes without restrooms um, in, in that neighborhood. But I don't know if it was a slip of my mind to that experience. What? But I said, no, we don't believe in them. I will tell you that she crossed her legs as if to say, well, I'll see how long I can last. And when I saw that she had settled down, I said to her, Barry, are you crazy? And she looked at me there and she said, well, I don't know. As if to say, you guys are so crazy that if you told me you don't believe in bathrooms, I mean, okay. So here's the strange thing. We are no longer eccentric lunatics, or as we were in the 80s, the big thing was we're cult members. Enough people know us well enough to know everyone comes to Chabad because they want to, because that's what they want to do. No one is dragging them. We don't have a special Kool-Aid they're drinking. They also know it's not a cult because no two shluchim are quite alike, which means Every center is going to have its own flavor. So, strangely enough, we're viewed as more normal than we were perceived to be before. But what I'm going to share with you will highlight how we are not quite the norm at all. I want to disabuse you of the fact that we are normal. Helen Keller was once asked if she could think of anything worse than losing sight. She quickly replied, Losing one's vision. Very powerful, very true. And in our case, as shluchim of the Rebbe, absolutely integral. We have moments when we lose our sight, bogged down as we are, thank God, by numerous responsibilities, often with not enough resources. It can happen during a difficult pregnancy or a struggle with infertility. 
when experiencing a very hard time with one of our children, or dealing with an onerous community dynamic, or in launching a building campaign, or God forbid, in facing an overwhelmingly painful tragedy. In all of this, however, we must cling tenaciously to our vision. Because you see, shluchim are not just a bunch of men, women, and children thrown together in sisterhood or fraternity, linked by common lifestyles and goals. It has become increasingly clear that the world depends on us in ways it is just beginning to recognize, and in ways we ourselves will most likely never fully appreciate. When they, and with this I mean the Jewish so-called mainstream establishment, begrudgingly calls us the most successful organization in Jewish life today, it is always equivocated, always with a qualification. And here I quote, the most controversial yet most successful, unquote. Or, quote, we may not agree with their theology or philosophy, but we must take a page out of their playbook and learn how to engage Jews on the periphery, etc., etc., etc. Let me read something to you. Because now there's already a cottage industry of writings like this. But this, I believe, is one of the first. And I read here from a report authored by Dr. Gary A. Tobin called Directions to the Future, Leadership Attitudes in the Philadelphia Jewish Community from the Brandeis University and the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia. And I read just two paragraphs. The respondents often exhibited a growing respect, sometimes grudging and sometimes mystified, of orthodox outreach efforts to young people. They noted that Chabad touches young Jewish lives both individually and as a group. They told instances where Chabad rabbis asked young people into their homes, gasp, for Shabbat dinner, then counseled them, taught them about Jewish life through group and individual study, and provided a strong, unambiguous sense of Jewish purpose and identity. Some of those interviewed said that perhaps the Federation or another Jewish organization should begin to imitate both the message and methodology of Chabad, reinforcing traditional Judaism through study, worship, and ritual as a means to attract young people. Here's the most important sentence. The most appealing aspect of Chabad for the interviewees was admiration for their sense of direction, purpose, and focus. Given that many believe that the Federation had lost its focus, just as the Jewish community in general lost its focus, the willingness of Chabad to actively promote Judaism has become more appealing to those who might have disdained orthodoxy more in the past. Interesting. Here's the thing. What people don't realize is that our playbook is our philosophy and theology. In fact, we eat, sleep, breathe, and pay our bills with our philosophy and theology. If you were to be a fly on the wall at the annual convention for shluchim or shluchot, you might be very surprised by what you see. Yes, there's a whole host of workshops, ostensibly touting everything from efficiency in managing your fundraising to managing your time to programming and so on and so forth. But what are most looking going for? What are most looking being nurtured by? Fabringens, sitting and talking, learning the Rebbe's Torah, singing Nagunim. Does this sound like a well-oiled machine to you? Does this sound like a convention for a global behemoth of organizations, 
So here it is unfurled for you, our controversial theology and philosophy unveiled. Here is why we are not, nor do we aspire to be mainstream. Here is why we elude classification and cannot be neatly pegged as outreach professionals, educators, communal leaders, otherwise known as machers, administrators, clergy people, spiritual leaders, or healers. Although we surely are all of the above and much more, yet we are in truth none of the above. We are abnormal. First and foremost, we are Hasidim. What is a Hasid? In 1907, Rabbi Shalom Dov Lubavitch, the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, was staying in Würzburg, Germany, and a group of Hasidim came to spend a Shabbos with the Rebbe. The Rebbe prayed for many hours that Shabbos morning, as was his manner. In the meantime, the Hasidim recited Kiddush, and they consumed a quantity of what is euphemistically called l'chayims. Later, when the Rebbe had finished and they sat with him for the Shabbos meal, Rabbi Yosef Yuzik asked, Rebbe, what is a chassid? Replied the Rebbe, a chassid is a lamplighter. The lamplighter walks the streets carrying a flame at the end of a pole. He knows that the flame is not his, and he goes from lamp to lamp to set them alight. Asked Rabbi Yosef Yuzik, what if the lamp is in a desert? Then one must go and light it, said the Rebbe. And when one lights a lamp in a desert, the desolation of the desert becomes visible. The barren wilderness will then be ashamed before the burning lamp. Continued the chassid, what if the lamp is at sea? Then one must undress, dive into the sea, and go light the lamp. And this is a chassid, Rabbi Yosef Yuzik asked. For a long while, the Rebbe thought in contemplation, and then he said, yes, this is a chassid. But Rebbe, I don't see the lamps, answered the Rebbe, because you are not a lamplighter. How does one become a lamplighter? First, you must reject the evil within yourself. Start with yourself, cleanse yourself, refine yourself, and you will see the lamp within your fellow. When a person is himself coarse, God forbid, he sees coarseness. When a person is himself refined, he sees the refinement in others. Rabbi Yosef Yusuf then asked, is one to grab the other by the throat? Replied the Rebbe, not by the throat, no. By the lapels, yes. Our Rebbe referred to the story often and expounded upon it. First of all, being a lamplighter begins with changing yourself. It means leaving behind one's preconceived notions, lack of spiritual refinement, materialistic perspective, to rid oneself of any vestige of judgment and consension, and to see each and every Jew as a wondrous lamp awaiting ignition. When we become more refined, more spiritually sensitive, taught the Rebbe, we see that reflected in others. If we look at a Jew and we do not discern the lamp within him or her, we are simply not looking the right way. We are not looking in the right place. We are being distracted by a sideshow. We are not looking straight ahead and into the essence. We need to adjust our lenses. Sometimes we need a frontal lobotomy. Being a lamplighter means putting someone else, more correctly, a lot of someone else's before yourself and your needs and your comforts, both physical and spiritual. Being a lamplighter means making oneself a conduit through which good can travel. The lamp has all of its needs within it. 
The lamplighter must remember that it is not creating anything new. One of the terms that makes me most nauseous is, I made him or her from, which means I made him or her more observant. You made them nothing. Get out of their way and they will become who they need to be. It is simply through moving its stick that has a fire atop it closer to the lamp and igniting the lamp. In other words, revealing the lamp's potential that exists within it that the lamplighter can work. When the lamplighter engages in this kind of activity for ulterior motives to become more important or to be recognized, it loses its inherent fire without which nothing can be accomplished. When it realizes that it is no more than a stick, not even a holder of the stick, only then can great things be accomplished. Being a lamplighter means dealing with all kinds of personalities, even those who present as a quintessential metaphor for a desert, barren, bereft of any redeeming qualities, not Torah, not intellect, not fine characteristics, sometimes not even basic menschlichkeit. Yet, says the Rebbe, when the lamplighter perseveres, that kind of person will be embarrassed to remain aloof to those overtures and to remain impervious to developing his or her innate potential. On the other side of the spectrum is a person who knows, has it all, Torah, mitzvahs, theology, philosophy, law, they don't need you, and this person makes it clear that they have no need for you. What is the job of the lamplighter? Don't engage in polemics. Don't argue. Don't try to prove anything. Remember that there is no one who doesn't need something. Be a mensch. Be helpful if you can. Be there when necessary. Be there with the truth. And if responding to their needs means having self-sacrifice, have self-sacrifice. When you lavish love and care on someone, anyone, everyone, it takes a toll on them. It changes them for the better. This, the Rebbe taught, is a chassid. Another analogy or term for a chassid is a soldat, a soldier. A soldier has to be ready to plunge him herself into fire or water for the commander without asking questions, without sparing strength and resources. It means I get up in the morning on days when I'm feeling great and some when I'm feeling less than great, when I'm anxious and when I am, and when my home and hearth is together and when my home and hearth is unraveled. But I get up and I do what I have to do. But that's all a chassid. What does it mean to be a shliach or a shlucha? That is a whole other thing, not apart from, but in addition to everything that is a chassid. In Hasidic terminology, a shliach is the yado arichta of the Rebbe, the long arm of the Rebbe. Every single day when we get up, we say this to ourselves consciously or subconsciously, I am the long arm of the Lubavitcher Rebbe an extension of the Rebbe. I am the Rebbe's presence in my town, in my city, in my state, in my neighborhood, on my campus. I am the conduit through which his energy and effluence flow. I am the long arm of the Rebbe. More specifically, Jewish law teaches shliach shel adam kemoso. A person's messenger is like himself. A shliach, a messenger, is like the person Actually, this is not mere polemic or platitude or poetry. It finds expression in practical halacha. For example, a writ of divorce delivered by a man's proxy 
is considered as delivered by himself. I repeat, if a man sends a messenger to deliver a get in his behalf, it is as if he delivered it. Now, while I could spend 48 minutes on just this point alone, I just want to bring to your attention something fascinating in Jewish law. For someone to be a shliach for someone else, for someone to act as a proxy, legally speaking, on the one hand, they must know that they are simply a conduit through which they are accomplishing what needs to be accomplished for the other person. On the other hand, you cannot act as a shliach if you are not an adult, if you are not completely sentient, if you don't have all of your faculties. This delicate interplay, I might even call it a trapeze act, is very important in shlichus. On the one hand, you are simply the long arm of the Rebbe, not even the long arm, you're the stick. And on the other hand, you are expected to use all of your intellect and all of your creativity and all of your ingenuity to bring the Rebbe's plans to fruition. Okay. If in halacha, shliach shal adam kimoso, a person's messengers like himself, we have to ask, to understand what a shliach is, we are compelled to ask, what is a Rebbe? Hasidic teaching explains that the Rebbe is rosh b'nei Yisrael that the word Rebbe is an acrostic for three Hebrew words, the head of the children of Israel. It's an audacious appellation. The head of the Koma Shalema, the complete body that is the people of Israel. That is why the Rebbe knows and the Rebbe feels and the Rebbe can send, as we know from countless stories, a chassid, a shliach, to search out a Jew in a small, faraway town who is crying out silently, but not in vain because the Rebbe hears him. How could he not hear him if every part of the body is connected to and is in fact vivified by the head, by the brain, that central clearinghouse that sorts millions of messages every millisecond? So if we understand a shliach as a messenger, which by proxy is the one who dispatched him or her, and the Rebbe is the brain, it becomes necessary to ask, is each shliach or shlucha the brain of the Jewish body? It's a trick question. The answer, of course, is no. But at the same time, based on the Talmudic definition of a messenger, the answer must be yes. How can this be? I want to suggest one way of understanding this. The brain is comprised of approximately 100 billion neurons, nerve cells, which send messages to neurons all over the body via the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. Every Bodily movement necessitates hundreds of messages transmitted via the neurons to other neurons. A shliach is a neuron, part of the intricate, sensitive, highly specialized, absolutely bedazzling nervous system through which the brain is connected to every single part of the body. Now let us understand this properly. It is, of course, of utmost importance that each organ function in healthy fashion. The heart, the liver, the kidneys, the lung. In the analog, those kinds of extremely critical functions of the Jewish community, the organs in the body are tended to by community leaders, both professional and lay leaders, people who give of themselves often night and day with great self-sacrifice to make sure our communal infrastructure is healthy and strong. Shluchim are worried about that too. But our main thrust... Our identity, our preoccupation is neurology, connecting every single Jewish person with the head. 
of course, once connected with the head, they become connected with the creator of the body. As Moshe says, Anochi omei ben Hashem Moses said, what is my function as a Jewish leader? I stand between you and between God. The tzaddik, the rebbe, is the memutza hamechubar, the connective, memutza hamechaber, the connective agent. But our job, and it's a big job, is to get every single part of the body to connect to the brain. How does this system work? The nerves are, let's say, the electrical wiring system that relay messages from every part of the body to the brain and from the brain to every part of the body. Motor nerves carry messages between the brain and the muscle to make the body move. Sensory nerves carry messages between the brain and the body to convey information about pain, pressure, temperature, and so on and so forth. The amazing thing is that these neurons are all connected, not quite physically, but in a breathtaking dance they do in which they're constantly relaying information to each other. More miraculous is the way in which neurons can be stimulated. Every time you learn something new, neurons make new connections to yet other neurons. Each neuron has a head and an arm-like extensions that are varied and distinct and cause varied and distinct interactions to occur between them all of the time. I submit that shluchim and shluchos, your rabbis and rebbitzins, understand themselves, whether they could articulate it exactly this way or not, to be neurons. Our, and I am including myself as I am fortunate enough to be a shlucha, our main job is to make those connections. I said I was going to give you the truth, so I'm going to give you the truth. Of course we would ideally like for every Jew to be connected and observe Torah and mitzvot. Of course we have to have some type of plan what needs to be accomplished in our particular town, university, city, state, or country, strategic initiatives, you might call them. But above and beyond all else, our obsession is neurology, connection. And in all of our busyness and all our professionalism, we dare not forget this. When we facilitate a chance for a Jew to perform a mitzvah, whether it be candlelighting, Torah learning, listening to the shofar, going to the mikvah, affixing a mezuzah on their door, we have connected them to their inner core and to the head of the body that is Israel. When we make it possible for Jews to think more deeply about their identity, just by being who we are, having our kids run around, breathe, play, fight, take a drink of water in public, but only after saying the appropriate blessing. When a student eats a bagel and cream cheese during finals week at 2 a.m. at Chabad, shakes a lulav or esrog in our, on, shakes a lulav and esrog in our sukkah mobile, they have connected. All we have to do is talk to our friends and acquaintances like our Rebbe taught us, without prejudging anybody, without being patronizing, without the soft bias of lowered expectations. If it's Sukkot, and I have to bless on the little of an esrog, so does every other Jew. It's very simple. Give a child in one of our preschools, Hebrew schools, elementary schools, teen clubs, etc., a positive feeling about Yiddishkeit, they are connected for life. How does the neuron bring messages to the brain? Not by thinking about it being a neuron. Not by thinking about the brain or the spinal cord or the peripheral nerves. Simply by being what it must be, a transmitter. Neurology is the most difficult, the most delicate, the most dangerous, the most wondrous aspect of biology, of medicine, of healing. Nerves are complex. They need to be sheathed and protected. And at the same time, they must be exposed so that via chemical reaction, they can send a message to the next neuron in the line.
Some need to be massaged, other needs to be left alone. Some need to be separated, some need to be connected. We all have our very distinct jobs and just as clearly we are all interconnected. We depend on each other. The brain depends on our cohesion and cooperation. The body can't function without that. And specifically it can't function if we are not one million percent in sync getting the messages from each other, really getting the messages from each other. And here's another truth that I'm not especially proud of. Chabad Shluchim are just like everyone else with a complete landscape of emotions that include fear, jealousy, ambition, anger, and yes, sometimes even our colleagues. But we really can't afford to give in to that baser subset. We must work together and feel each other's pain, the urgency, the loneliness, the elation, the insecurity, the excitement of our fellow shluchim. Because we're not just out there doing our own thing. We don't have careers. We don't have jobs. We are just neurons in this one body in the most basic sense and in the deepest sense and on every level in between, we need to work together. We know this but I don't think we still fathom this deeply enough. We know that we are seeing kids come to our college campuses who have been to Ghanaian camps, they've gone on to Chabad teen clubs, or they've been to preschool. They're friendship circle volunteers, and they're showing up at our table. And in turn, we hope that the children of our alumni are showing up in someone else's preschool and that they have found a Chabad shul to go to. And so the concentric circles go and have to keep moving ever deeper and higher. Increasingly, in a very nebulous, confused way, but in some nascent way, the world is beginning to take note of just how much it depends on Chabad Lubavitch. But really, that's all besides the point. The point is what the Rebbe told us to do. And so, to the best of my ability to do so, I have, this is a free translation of two extractions from different talks the Rebbe gave that both of which spoke to me very, very deeply, the second of which keeps me up at night. In 1986, on the Shabbos during which all the shluchim had gathered for the annual convention that year, the Rebbe, amongst many other things, said the following, and like I said, this is a free, unauthorized translation. Quote, Often when community leaders and activists arrive to a city, they present a speech about the situation of national and world Jewry, how dire it is, and ultimately how setting up or helping a certain institution can turn that around. In contradistinction, when Lubavitcher Chabad Shluchim arrive in a city, their first and foremost mandate is to speak to the members of the community individually and to explain that they have arrived to help them specifically and personally to bolster Jewish life and to increase in acts of goodness and kindness for men, women, and children, Jew and non-Jewish. And therefore, the Rebbe continued, to ask the lay people to partner in this work with their monetary resources and with their time and talents. Only then is there a mention of global concerns. Because in essence, how can one achieve, the Rebbe says, world peace and redemption? The world, after all, is comprised of large and small, oftentimes far-flung cities. Each shliach or shlucha has his, her corner of the world. The world population is comprised of individuals. 
If, the Rebbe continues, one concentrates solely or mostly on the larger picture and thus neglects the needs of the individual, it is impossible in that fashion to save the Jewish people and the world entire. You might mistakenly think this means that the Rebbe was satisfied and gratified with small piecemeal accomplishments. After all, the Rebbe said the global begins with the personal. That could not be further from the truth. Yes, the Rebbe demanded that we mirror his actions, that our focus be on the individual in front of us at that given moment. That is why we live, this is why we breathe. But at the same time, here's one example from among many from a talk. This one is from 1960 that highlights the Rebbe's insatiable demand for grandiose thinking and execution. The Rebbe begins by citing a Mishnah, which teaches, regarding the various offerings in the temple that necessitated vessels which would be filled for instance, with flour and oil for a meal offering or wine for a libation, etc. So there's a very interesting halacha. There's a very interesting ruling. The Mishnah teaches that a vessel can only be sanctified if the receptacle is completely full of whatever it is to hold. Again, if the receptacle is not completely full, it cannot be sanctified. The Rebbe fluidly employs this as a metaphor for properly fulfilling one's shlichus in life. And he says, if one uses less than their full intellectual capacity, not quite all of their talents, if he knows or believes that he has a talent but puts it aside or subverts it, if one uses less than the fullness of their resources, if one can impact more people but stops at less, he, she violates their personal mandate. The Rebbe goes further. Even if he impacted great numbers of people, there still will be one Jew crying out in the great abyss that the spiritual effluence that was supposed to come to him did not. It was impeded by this person who was supposed to be the transmitter. These are my own words, but fell asleep at the wheel. If the vessel is not full, it is not sanctified. It means that if we're not doing every single thing we can and more, there's no sanctification. In countless public talks and in innumerable private exchanges, the Rebbe demanded more. The world needs more, bigger, better, more cutting edge, more comp innovative, more widespread ways and means that cast a wider net so no Jew is left behind. No Jew is left behind. As you can tell, there's absolutely no pressure in the life, my life's work, in my line. There's no pressure. Reflecting on these truths, Allow me to read for you a post from the Shluchim Exchange, dated October 7, 2007. Let me just explain what the Shluchim Exchange is. So everybody knows this is cataloged in all kinds of philosophy books. There's something called Preacher's Children's Syndrome. It's a real thing. Because Preacher's Kids Syndromes, PKS. 
you know, you grow up in a life that's a fishbowl, everybody's watching. I still remember trying to raise my shmuley in front of everybody. It was, you know, a little humbling. And those white shirts quickly became crimson with the grape juice. I worked so hard to have everybody bathe and dress beautifully and to create this portrait of Hasidic life that would be warm and fuzzy, but no, my kids could destroy that in a half a moment. Eh, you know, it's not easy. So what's the shluchim exchange? The shluchim exchange, and the women have this too, is a place to vent. It's a place where shluchim can talk in a safe space before there were safe spaces, where hopefully there are no microaggressions, and shluchim can ask each other advice, unload. They don't have to woo or wow anybody. They can let down their hair, kick off their heels, not worry about flatulence. So a lot of stuff goes down on this exchange. And I'm not on it, because there's a women's exchange. But my husband was so taken by this post that in extremely uncharacteristic fashion, he forwarded it to me. I tell you, extremely uncharacteristic fashion. And I promptly printed it out. And here's some of it. So the shliach who will remain unnamed says, as we've just concluded the Yom Tov season, I thought I'd share a little thought with you guys. Mini hakdama. Hakdama means preface. Two plus years ago, I was given an area in South Florida, a small island in North Miami Beach, as my makom hashlichas, my place to be a shliach. Being that this area is prohibitively expensive to buy, rent, lease, borrow, etc., what I have been doing is going there to do mitzvahim, which means going there from time to time to offer Jews opportunity to do different mitzvahs. I have classes. I drop off challahs. I trek on Yom Tif to blow shofar, shake lulav and etrog. And after doing this for two years, Baruch Hashem, 10 days before Rosh Hashanah this year, I signed a lease for a townhouse and publicized that Chabad would be doing services beginning this Rosh Hashanah. I was nervous because of the cost. I wasn't sure if I would have a minion and also if I would have zoning and nasty neighborly issues. Thank God, on the days of Rosh Hashanah, we had minyanim. We had a quorum. Not easily, not immediately, not without angina, but we did it. However, the nights of holiday and Shabbos following Rosh Hashanah were frightfully quiet. Yom Kippur, Baruch Hashem, was amazing. We had minyanim throughout the day. After the first days of Sukkot, when we had no, and both the N and the O in no are in caps, we had, ni- we had no minyanim. We had nice crowds for the meals in the sukkah at night, but never a minion. And during the days, practically no one, both words entirely in caps, showed up. I was thinking, perhaps for Simchat Torah, I should stay home in the observant community where my family lives. And I should give my family Yom Tiv there. So I called a bunch of shluchim, old, young, veterans, rookies, mishigayim, rolled up beards, not rolled up beards, rich ones, poor ones, and asked them what to do. Should I stay home or should I open my shul for the last two days? It was 50-50. They all said that a shliach should never take Yom Kippur as an example. 
We all have nice crowds for Yom Kippur and then fight for a minion just four days later. There were two shluchim, however, who said the right words. They pushed the right button. So I, then he catches himself, actually my wife cooked up a storm, built a new sukkah, the first one got destroyed in a windstorm, made phone calls, sent emails, hoping that people would show up. The first night we had Baruch Hashem, seven men, a bunch of women, and a bunch of children. We did hakafot. We did, we did the circular dancing traditional for Simchat Torah, and we ate in a small sukkah. Thursday, when Yiskar, the memorial service was said, nobody, all caps, six exclamation points, showed up. I was devastated. Even for Yisker, no one came. Thursday night, Simchat Torah, 44 people, all caps, came. I kept looking at the bottle of mashka, which is euphemism for liquor, to see if I drank too much, if I was imagining this. I mamish, which means veritably felt that the Rebbe was there dancing with us. The dancing and singing was unbelievable. I walked over to everyone and begged them to come on Shabbos so we could pull out the Torah and, and read from the Torah on the first Shabbos in the new cycle, Shabbos Bereshis. But here's the real point of this email. Friday morning, that is the morning after they had 44 people, I was in the middle of davening myself when one guy walked in. Within 25 seconds, he told me he only had 25 minutes. He had to get back to work. So I hurried through the rest of davening. I did hakafot with him, me, my kids, and him. And when we were done, he said, Rabbi, this was the first time in my life I ever did hakafot. So continues the shliach. So fellow shluchim, let me ask you a question. Which was better? Which hakafas was the reason I ended up going there? Thursday night or Friday morning? I sat down on Friday and I thought about it. The Rebbe knows, knew that there would be shluchim not having minyanim throughout the year and yamim tovim. The Rebbe also knew that we would be ripping our hair out, wondering what the heck am I doing here? And all the other unpleasant thoughts flooding our minds. Of course, the more people that show up, the merrier. But I really believe that many of our souls were sent to the places without minyan and without thriving Jewish communities to affect one soul on one holiday in middle of his lunch break. And he didn't even stay for lunch. He had spent his entire lunch break and then he had to leave. The point is, the Rebbe expects from us, his shluchim, the neurons, one Jew at a kafot, 45 Jews at a kafot, 400 Jews at a kafot, 4,000 Jews at a kafot, 40,000 Jews at a kafot, 400,000 Jews at a kafot, the so-called small things, the big things, and the massive. If you talk about organs, there are more important organs and less important organs. But if you talk about neurons, each one is crucial. The ones that are involved in making a genius calculation or an emotionally volatile decision, and the ones involved in the batting of an eyelash, the flick of a wrist, or the flexing of calf muscle. Each one is crucial. Each city is different. Each situation has its variables. Each time is distinct. We know, or at least we think we know in our hearts what we can do, what we must do. But at the same time, we know that the Rebbe taught us that we can do much, much, much more than we think we can. In closing, it seems that our work is beginning to take on new urgency. 
and to grow in exponential manner. I invite each one of you to partner with us. As you just heard me share with you, that was the Rebbe's plan. Not that we arrive with resources and connections to our respective posts. Not that we open the faucet and resources flow from 770. But that we find those connections so we can make connections. And so it goes ad infinitum. I know that there are those of you sitting in this room who are already robust partners in the work of your local Chabad, or maybe you are involved on a national level. And then there are the Sinai scholars who are the Jewish future. May we all, every single one of us, merit to see the Rebbe's blessings manifest and come to fruition in the most revealed way in our collective shlichus, in our mission, in our personal lives, which are one and the same thing, and complete our work of connecting each Jew to the brain and proceed finally as one healthy body upright to our promised land with Mashiach very soon. In fact, right now would not be too soon. So I take the Time's Up movement very seriously, and my, my time is going to be up in three minutes, but I have three minutes for questions. Yes, by virtue of the fact that you are there for your Rebetzin, trying to do everything you can, one neuron connects the other, connects the other, connects the other, and each and every single one is crucial to the function of the body. And this is the sikha. I, I read to you the exact words of the Rebbe. The Rebbe said you arrive in a city and you speak to individuals and you tell them that you need them to partner with you. It's as simple as that. You make yourself vulnerable because that is what we need to do. Yes. <laughs> what inspired me to become a shlucha? Um, well, I'll say that in Yiddish's expression, more mazel than seichel. When you have more mazel than seichel. I definitely have much more mazel than seichel. So I was brought up in a family, in a home, that was suffused with and electrified by the word and direction of the Rebbe. My parents were not shluchim in the conventional sense because the Rebbe asked, actually told them to stay in Crown Heights. But that had been their desire. And for many, many, always, I want to say many years, but really always, I grew up in a home where my mother headed the candlelighting campaign and she was busy night and day. And oftentimes the Rebbe would send her direction and would say, Mohir, this is urgent. And that word mohir resonated throughout our home. It bounced off the wall. It ricocheted off of every piece of furniture. If the Rebbe says that it's mohir, it's urgent, that a woman in Boise, Idaho get a candlestick, or a woman here or there get a response, it is mohir. So I think for me it was a no-brainer. You know, I remember that we just, the first time I met my husband, we discussed this. In fact, before I met my husband, my mother said to me, are you ready to date this guy? He's probably going to end up living in Hebron. She had this idea that he was going to live in Hebron on Shlichas. And for some reason, 
what she thought was going to scare me really appealed to me because I always loved the crazy and the adventures. I was like, yes. So I was just very, very, very lucky. We're all very fortunate. Yes. Um, they think correctly that the body can do amazing things. It can generate new neurological connections in a nanosecond. Now, of course, it would be nice if people would give us some notice. My, um, what I, what I, in my mind, I have a classic story that I'll share with you. I have a sister who lives in Munich, Germany. And she and her husband um, have a child with very special needs who often keeps them up all night. And I tell you this because it's seminal to the story. So for them to sleep at night is not the norm. It's an extraordinary luxury. One night at 3 a.m., the doorbell buzzes. Urgently, incessantly, they can't ignore it. So by intercom, she says uh, something like, who's there in German? And she gets a response in Hebrew, Higanu, which means we've arrived. Okay. So uh, she says, Mietem, who are you? Oh, we're a group of students. We just got, came from the airport. Our, fl our plane was delayed. Higanu. Well, my sister, uh, being my sister, uh, uh, explained to them via intercom that her home, her small European apartment was not a hostel and that she was sure that they could find accommodations in a motel and so on and so forth. But the point is that increasingly the world has come to rely on us for all kinds of things, from hot kugel and chollen to a mikveh to counseling to... Uh, I, I've always marveled at how some of my friends... Um, you know, let's just say some medical professionals, I would have to cool my heels in their office for two hours waiting for my appointment, but they come into my office at any moment expecting me to be available. There is this perception, but it comes with the territory. So what do we have to do? We have to have stuff in the freezer. We have to have number 10 cans, chickpeas, corn. You have to have some tricks up your sleeve. You have to have small packages of coca so you can throw into water and create a meal in a nanosecond. It's part of the privilege. It's part of the job. And it's also nice when people are a little bit more understanding. <laughs> I'm not going to negate that. Anything else? All right, guys, young guys. If you're traveling through the world and you're going to make stops at the Chabad house, wherever you're going, as you should, call the shliach before you come, email them and ask them what you could bring them. You know, they need a certain kind of baby formula that they can't get in Thailand. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.